Section 61 of The Catholic's Ready Answer. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Catholic's Ready Answer by the Reverend M. P. Hill. Section 61. Mixed Marriages. Objection. The evils of mixed marriages are exaggerated especially in a country like ours, in which there is a growing liberality of sentiment in matters religious, in a country in which live and let live is the prevailing principle, Catholic husbands and wives have little to fear from the religious hostility of their partners in wedlock. The answer, by whom are the evils of mixed marriages exaggerated? By the bishops and priests? Surely not. They of all men ought to know whether the evils of mixed marriages are realities or fictions. Catholics who are partial to mixed marriages would have their eyes open if they had but a small part of the experience of any priest who had seen half a dozen years of service. They would acknowledge that the prohibition placed upon mixed marriages is amply justified, even though they may have known cases in which the evils were comparatively small. A few odd cases of mixed marriages unattended by serious evils constitute no argument against the general law prohibiting them, and yet there is scarcely any case in which harm is not done by the union of a Catholic and a non-Catholic, and if the harm is not recognized by the Catholic party, the fact argues a small appreciation of things that should be dear to the heart of every true Catholic. Marriage is the most intimate of unions and in every well-assorted marriage the tendency of married life is to weld two hearts into one, to produce an identity of thought, desire, purpose, and action. Religion, on the other hand, is one of the most deeply rooted sentiments of the human heart. In the course of human history, no other feeling is wrought so powerfully in uniting and sundering hearts. The bloodiest of wars have had their origin in religious animosity. Now let us suppose that religious discord enters the sanctuary of what at life. The more intimate the union might be on other accounts, the more bitter the estrangement ultimately produced by religious feeling. If the two were not united so intimately by their state, there might not be the slightest antipathy between them. The same pair, if unmarried, might be friends lodging under the same roof and difference of religion might not affect their mutual relations in the slightest degree. But make them man and wife, and you will find that you are attempting to mingle oil and water. The state into which they have entered, instead of being a bond of moral union, is really a principle of mutual repulsion. It is remarkable what a difference there is between courtship and marriage in regard to the predominance of religious feeling in either of the parties to a mixed marriage. It is only after the wedding that religious antipathy comes to the surface. During courtship, Bertha is so charmed with Thomas as to fancy that the law of the church could never have contemplated a cause like his. Not only is his love sincere, but it is not cooled in the least by difference of religion. Indeed, he seems to be singularly liberal-minded, and it would be the most natural thing in the world that he should one day consent to be a Catholic, if not before, at least after the marriage. When courtship is approaching its term, the religious question may be forced into prominence by Bertha's parents, and Thomas gives expression to sentiments which Bertha thinks ought to satisfy any Catholic. Before the marriage ceremony is performed, 
Thomas gives the solemn promise required that he will permit the offspring of the marriage to be brought up in the Catholic religion. He is doubtless sincere, but during courtship love has cast a glamour over his eyes and has given a roseate hue to things which might otherwise have caused repulsion. The marriage is celebrated, if celebrate is the word to designate the simple ceremony which is permitted and which may not be performed within the walls of a church. Soon the honeymoon is passed, and then husband and wife begin to settle down into their old selves. Conjugal love has lost nothing of its depth or of its sincerity, but it has lost a good deal of its enchantment, and things begin to appear in their true colors. Thomas begins to realize that he is a partner for life to one who goes to Mass, and is therefore an idolater, and that he has pledged himself to let his children be brought up idolaters. But he still loves his wife, he respects his obligations, and endeavors to swallow his indignation. But by and by children appear on the scene, and then the Protestant Thomas begins to assert itself anew. The sentiments of his Sunday school and Bible class days are felt again in all their pristine vigor. The idea that now dominates his mind is that he is master in his own house, and he resolves that his house shall not be a hotbed of idolatry. The rest of the tale need not be told, for it is a well-known reality in thousands of households. The evil results are, of course, incalculable. Unhappiness and domestic dissension would be deplorable enough if they were the only evils resulting from mixed marriages, but they are nothing compared with the loss of faith and the children of such unions, of which evidence is furnished us every day of our lives. The case might be varied. Oftentimes the non-Catholic party is the wife, and in that case the influence of the mother is lost for the Catholic training of her children. Or perhaps she instills into the children a hatred for the religion of their father. Occasionally there is mutual compliance or a common indifference in matters of religion, and the children grow up virtual pagans. The choice of a school for the children will be determined by the worldliest of motives. The secular interests of the children are the one absorbing thought of the parents. But even putting the case as mildly as possible, supposing all promises are kept and the wishes of the Catholic party complied with, what an impassable gulf must separate the members of such a family when they cannot join one another in the worship of God, when religion cannot form the subject of conversation at the family table, when the children who would fain speak out of the abundance of their heart about the many beautiful things associated with their Catholic faith, know that a seal is put upon their lips by the presence of their father, who regards all such things as superstitious and idolatrous, or when a loving wife stands at the dying bed of her husband and knows how little she can do for him in his passage to eternity. Perhaps she cannot even make him realize the necessity of contrition for sin as a condition for reconciliation with God. Great are the burdens that must be borne by one who is a wife and a mother, even under the most favorable circumstances. How much more burdensome her life when freighted with the evils of a mixed marriage. It is idle to talk of any change of conditions in our day by which mixed marriages are rendered less objectionable than they formerly were. They are more dangerous today than ever before. In the first place, the growing liberality of sentiment mentioned above is greatly exaggerated. There are still countless members of the sex who have imbibed a hatred of Catholicity which is no less virulent than that of their ancestors. The majority of our countrymen, 
have, it is true, deserted the churches and the Sunday schools, but that only makes the case worse. Better Christianity in some form than no Christianity at all. In the old days, the non-Catholic husband of a Catholic wife had more commonly a sense of obligation to God and the natural law. He had some appreciation of the necessity of a religious education for his children. He had some notion of the divine law governing the relations between husband and wife. He held the doctrine, though in an imperfect form, that marriage cannot be dissolved except by the death of one of the parties. But what can be expected today of the agnostic, the atheist, or even the indifferentist? In their case there is no barrier set up between right and wrong except convention or expediency. In the case of many a non-Catholic husband today, there is no telling what he thinks in his secret heart about the duties of the married state. And now a few words of admonition to the young Catholic of marriageable age for whom this article is chiefly written. 1. The Church does not merely advise you not to marry a non-Catholic. She positively forbids you to do so. When the reasons are sufficient, she may grant a dispensation, but she does so with reluctance and frequently in order to prevent a greater evil. She gives her consent to the marriage in the same spirit in which the father of the prodigal son gave him his portion of the family substance, and permitted him to wander off into distant lands. 2. If it is wrong to marry one who is not of your faith, it is also wrong to contract an intimacy that will probably lead to such a marriage. Be resolute in the beginning, and you will save yourself a lifetime of misery. Suppress the tender feeling as soon as it begins to show itself. Seek other company, and trust that a heavenly providence will one day find you a suitable companion for life. 3. Remember that love is apt to warp the judgment, and that an ounce of prevention is worth more than a pound of cure. End of section 61